todo el mundo. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the film The Ventures Stars on Guitars. You are listening to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast for people who love music from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And now, on to the show. This week, I'm talking to Alana Nash, a journalist and author who's written a number of books set in the popular music world, four of which are centered on Elvis Presley. Unlike most biographers who might just skim an entertainer's life to create a broad overview, each of Alana's Elvis book focus in on one aspect for a really deep dive. I'm nearly finished listening to her almost 30-hour audiobook, Baby Let's Play House, which homes in on Elvis's relationships with women. It's such a great reference book that I quoted it in one of my books in a chapter about the so-called baby groupies of the 1970s. So without further ado, let's get Alana on the line. Hi, Alana. Welcome to the show. Stacey, uh, thank you. This is fun. Yeah, I've really been wanting to talk to you ever since I started listening to the audiobook of your one of your many Elvis books. In fact, you've not only written one, but four books on Elvis and several magazine articles. So I'm kind of wondering what initially motivated you to start writing about him. Well, I'm so old that I well remember when he came on the national stage and he was just like no one else. But, you know, somebody much smarter than I has said that the world, when Elvis Presley came on, came on the scene, was like going from black and white to technicolor. And I think that's exactly right, because everything changed. And so I was a witness, a total witness to that, and loved him, loved him, loved him, loved him as a little girl, and had to have a guitar and carved his name on the front of it with a safety pin. And my sister said, you're going to get in trouble for that. But, you know, just eaten up with him. And then he went into the army and I missed him and he came back out and the uh, music changed. You know, it wasn't this kind of rockabilly flavored rock and roll. And that took some getting used to. And um, I liked the first few movies and then the movies got less involving. And then the Beatles arrived. And so I have to tell you that I put Elvis on the back burner pretty much during the Beatle reign. But then when the 68 special came, I was like, 
wow, you know, this guy can really still do it. He is really worthy of our attention. And the music got better again for a while. And then it got not so great. And there were, there were a lot of people to, to command my attention by that time. And uh, then I saw him decline and I thought, what is happening with him? And then he died on my birthday uh, and your mother's birthday. That's right. Yeah. In 1977. And at that time, I was working for the Louisville, Kentucky paper, the Career Journal. And they sent me and the star columnist down to Memphis to cover the funeral and kept us down there for a few days to write a, a, a special magazine, a rhotic reviewer that they sold to lots of other papers. And then uh, I was just, you know, I just couldn't get enough. I couldn't get enough. And, and there was a, a newspaper reporter down there named Bill Burke, who was the Elvis expert at the afternoon paper. And I went to him and I just said, I don't know anybody in Memphis. I don't know anybody to interview. I am stuck. Please help me. And he was amazing. He just took me with him everywhere and introduced me to a lot of Elvis people in the inner circle. And one of them was uh, Alan Fortas, who was a member of uh, Elvis's Memphis Mafia. And I really liked him and, and wrote a piece about him and stayed in touch with him. And, and uh, I said, why don't we do a little book together? I'd like to learn how to ghostwrite. Why don't I, I do a book with you? So that was the first one. But my name was not on it because I did intend for it just to be a ghostwritten book. But then he died very shortly after it came out. Oh. And so there was no one to promote it. And when it went into a paperback edition, his son, Miles, said, you know, you should put your name on this so somebody can talk about it. Miles wasn't eager to do promotion. And um, and I really loved Alan. And he was a vital part of that, uh, of the entourage in the early years. But he's almost forgotten anymore. And the book is out of print now. And I hope that I can get it back in print so people can learn about Alan. He was hilarious. He was a, a class clown for for. Uh, for Elvis, uh, along with Lamar Fike, and uh, had just hilarious stories. Well, you mentioned, um, you know, my mom, she was a huge Elvis fan as well, and you two share a birthday. Yes. And yes, and I know that she had read a couple of your books. She read everything about Elvis, and she was a big fan, but she never uh, got a chance to meet him, even though she, when yeah. she was a teenager, she ran away to Las Vegas and everything, and she just kept missing him somehow. But um, I'm almost done listening to the audiobook of Baby Let's Play House, Elvis Presley, and the women who loved him. And that's my first book of yours. And it won't be the last because I love your writing style. Oh, um, what I like most about it is that you delve into the psychology behind Elvis's possible motivations. Um, I didn't know anything about the twinless twin syndrome, um, you know, before your book. So can you explain what that means and how losing his twin at birth could have affected Elvis? Well, this has enormous consequences and really directed his life. His twin, Jesse Guerin, Elvis, Elvis Aaron and Jesse Guerin, Jesse named for Vernon's father, Elvis's paternal grandfather, uh, Jesse Guerin was stillborn. That had a tremendous amount of uh, influence on Elvis in, in that Gladys always talked about Jesse and they visited Jesse's grave. And she told Elvis he was special because he had survived and that he was living for two. So in Elvis's case, uh, he had tremendous developmental consequences and that he never really felt whole. And uh, 
part of the reason was that he was trying to live up to this idea of living for two. And he, you know, twins have their own language. They have a lot of mannerisms that they share. They have their own world. And without Jesse, Elvis transferred those on to Gladys, particularly when Vernon was in prison for altering a check. So that became a, a bit unhealthy, particularly as they were, as you know, extremely poor. And, and Elvis and Gladys slept in the same bed as, as the three of them had slept in the same bed when Vernon was around. But by the time Vernon came back from prison, Elvis was the man of the house. And he had usurped Vernon in Gladys's life, really. And it's so interesting to me, and I always say this because it's fascinating to me, that if you look at photographs of the three of them, Elvis and Gladys are almost always touching. Hmm. And Vernon is almost always off to the side. He's an interloper when he comes back from prison. So the problem is that Elvis then could never really separate from Gladys. He couldn't differentiate from her. And he he remained a part of her. You know, my, my friend Roy Turner has this beautiful line that they were one soul and two bodies. Hmm. And I, I think that's about that's about right. But the other thing is that twinless twins kind of blame themselves for their siblings' death. So there's a whole lot of psychic stuff going on in that big brain. And um, this this unnatural closeness with his mother and this guilt renders Elvis kind of a hopeless mate for, for life. Um, when he was in the service, still stateside, um, he spent a lot of time in the home, a Waco, Texas home of uh, Eddie Fidal, who was a DJ down there. And Eddie in, invited him to come uh, spend time with, with him and his family. And he said that the first thing he did when he came the first time was, was get his mother on the phone. And Eddie said, uh, when he got her on the line, all he said was mama. And apparently she said, Elvis. And then from from then on, for a whole hour, they were crying and moaning on the telephone. Hardly uh -huh. a word was spoken. So then when Gladys died in 1958, so did Elvis's ability to completely bond with a woman. I mean, he, huh. he may have gotten close at times, but he was already taken, as many twinless twins are. They're either taken by a parent or taken by the ghost of their twin who did not survive. Well, I thought another interesting thing that you brought up in your book was like, I always kind of thought of what I know of Elvis, like he's a mama's boy. And, yeah. you know, it seems like it was, a, you know, definitely parent-child relationship. And yet he referred to his parents as his babies, even when he was really young. I mean, what was that all about? Yes, he has become the parent, even to his dad, uh, and always felt that way, that he was responsible for them. I think that is uh, wrapped up in this guilt that he had about uh, being the survivor, uh, this trauma, and that he had denied his parents their other child. So it gets very complicated and very complex. I mean, his, his sexual psycho profile is amazing and fascinating. It is very fascinating. Um, now, this is kind of a totally fantastical supposition here, but I mean, have you ever thought about what how that might have affected Elvis if Jesse Guerin had lived? I mean, do you think Elvis would have still pursued a career in show business? Well, it's an it's a wonderful question and one that is not asked very often. There is a novel, and I wish I could remember the name of it. I reviewed it for Entertainment Weekly years ago when it came out about what had happened, what would have happened if Jesse had survived. And it, in the novel, Elvis would have gone on to be in show business. 
I'm not so sure, honestly, because, you know, he trained to be an electrician. I think that if Jesse had lived, Elvis would not have been so needy. He wouldn't have needed so much attention. He wouldn't have had the guilt. And perhaps he would not have pursued music as a career, but only a hobby. Yeah, well, I mean, he seems to have been at his foundation a very family-oriented, work-a-day, regular person who was kind of thrust into this extreme role that no one had ever experienced before. I mean, he was the pioneer of, you know, being a, a rock star. Well, he absolutely was. He was, he he drew the blueprint. Uh, and, and that was astonishing, miraculous, and and uh, traumatic because he, he didn't have a, a pattern to follow on how to live his life. And with that kind of crushing fame, I guess the only thing that had happened that was kind of akin to that was was Frank Sinatra but the the Bobby Soxers of the 40s you know eventually stopped screaming Mm -hmm. women never stopped screaming for Elvis and and you know he was he he was worthy of those screams but you know that uh Frank could live you know kind of a normal life if he wanted he could go out and and eat in a restaurant or spend time walking around a casino Elvis, Elvis couldn't do that so it's a, it really was part of the tragedy of, 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 of his story. Well, I'm a big fan of Baz Luhrmann, the filmmaker who did the Elvis film that I loved. And I, I've, Moulin Rouge is one of my all-time favorite movies. I just love the spectacle and the editing and the costumes and the sets that he does. Yeah. But, you know, I, like, I know that you wrote a book on Elvis and the Colonel, so I had assumed that it was based on your book, but it's not. So I'm curious to know, did you see the film? Um, you know, what, did, what are your thoughts on it? I did see the film. I saw it five times in the theater <laughs> because I really think it's a film you need to see in the theater. And Absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah. I tried to watch it on HBO and I found it was sorely lacking. And I would imagine a lot of people would say, what is, uh, you know, all the hoopla about because that the experience of seeing it in the theater, because there's so much going on on multiple screens, and, and to have that sound really cranked up and just around you uh, is part of the experience of that. I, I thought the first half of the film was absolutely brilliant. I mean, just, just astonishingly so. And particularly uh, that sequence where Elvis is a child uh, overseas, or uh, that's not even a word, uh, the, the way I want to use it, when he he spies on this this African American couple dancing, almost having sex, and he runs from the he's he's excited by that, and he runs from from that peephole shack uh, to the revival tent, where he is taken up by the music. So you have a, a kind of blending of of Elvis and sex and religion all together, which is something that honestly we could discuss about Dolly Parton as well because. Uh, she wrote in one of her books about how um, when she was a, a little girl, she stumbled into this abandoned church and, and found this old or- abandoned organ and was fascinated with it. And, and there were all these used spent condoms all around it. Uh, you know, the the uh, marriage of, of sex and uh, music is uh, something that people are squeamish about talking about in American culture. But Elvis Presley is the uh, personification of that. Yeah, I want another thing that I had noticed in the film that I thought might have been over the top or fantasy was his, the costuming. You know, I didn't realize yeah. that he, Elvis, wore pink 
you know, lace shirts and things like that, which you talk about in your book too. So, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, how did, where did he get that fashion sense from? Part of it was from the black community. Part of is that part of it, I think was just uh, emulation of his mother. Uh, I don't for a second mean that Elvis was homosexual. I do not think that in the slightest, not, not at all, but that he was fascinated by androgyny. He saw nothing taboo about it. And uh, he was always very woman-centered, you know, from reading uh, Baby Let's Play House. As a small child, he liked babysitting. He liked all female energy. He liked being around his aunts. He just liked it when he became famous and um, was just really kind of zooming to the top. He loved being around 14-year-old girls for various reasons. But part of it is he <laughs> wanted to know how they thought, uh, how they heard the music, what it meant to them, what was their psyche. And he was kind of stuck at about 16 to 18, somewhere in there. And so uh, he was fascinated by by 14-year-olds. It seemed a, a natural age for him to uh, to be involved in talking with people and having friendships with people of that age. So again, very woman-centered. He, he, he took some of his dance moves from Kay Wheeler, who did a step called the Rock and Bop, and from Tura Satana, who was, as you know, uh, a, a famous uh, uh, actress and... Uh, burlesque performer so yes so he he watched quite a bit of burlesque and uh you can see that in, in his early dance steps on stage so so very 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 woman-centered and influenced not ashamed by it in the slightest um didn't see any reason why he shouldn't uh wear mascara even eyeshadow as a 19 year old boy in memphis tennessee my god uh, how he didn't get beaten to death i do not know but but all of the androgyny of rock and roll can can be traced right back to 19-year-old Elvis Presley. Yeah, and uh, Little Richard at the time also was yes. wore makeup, and but he was gay. But um, yeah, I mean, you really kind of think about it as coming up in the with acceptance in the glam rock world with David Bowie and the Suite and the New York Dolls and bands like that. I mean, Elvis didn't go to that extreme, but right. yeah, and you're right, he he fully admitted it he didn't try to hide it you know yes I dye my eyelashes and yeah I thought that was another interesting aspect of your book too and you know those early jumpsuits are very feminine really with the fringe and and uh form-fitting and going to like the mystique of Elvis I can see why someone like Jim Morrison who died while he was still young and handsome and he didn't make that many albums relatively speaking I mean he kind of left us yeah. all wanting more but in your opinion why does elvis's legend and mystique continue to endure all these years later well i think there there are n numerous reasons for that uh one the estate uh, uh which is you know priscilla presley got the ball rolling for that and has been a figurehead for it love her or detest her and people seem polarized by her um uh, she she and the estate have done a magnificent job of getting him before the, and keeping him before the public all the time. Uh, two, it's Elvis himself. He was an American original. He was a deep and true artist. The, the work, especially the recordings versus the films, although the first films are dynamite, um, you can't get enough of it. You can't, you can't take your eyes off, the, off him. And his physical beauty, I mean, let's face it, you just are mesmerized by him. Men and women uh, both are just agog at, at how he he looked. And uh, Elvis makes us feel good, especially early Elvis. I mean, he's joyful. Um, 
who, who wouldn't want more of that all the time? Elvis did give a lot of credit to singers and musicians that influenced him. Um, you know, and I was, I'm at that part in your book where it's like at the late 60s right now. It's a very long audio book. It's about it 30 is. hours long, but yes. I listen to it every chance I get. Um, but, you know, I understand like in the late 60s, he tried to keep up with the changing times by listening to folk music. But um, I kind of get the impression that he didn't like rock music. I remember reading something about Led Zeppelin wanting to meet him because they were such huge fans and he kind of stole all of them. I think they did eventually meet up, but he wasn't, you know, he was kind of ambivalent, I guess, about rock music. Um, but who are some of his favorite music artists in the 60s and 70s? In the 70s, I feel like he kind of went more toward gospel, if that's correct. Back toward gospel and country music, uh, really embracing country music again, which he had done at the start of his career. I'm not sure that he didn't like rock music. He didn't like psychedelic music. He didn't like heavy metal music or something that was a precursor to heavy metal. Uh, he wanted a melody. He wanted something that was singable. You know, again, a lot of it goes back to soul artists. He loved Jackie Wilson. He would go to, to clubs to see Jackie Wilson perform. He loved Tom Jones, which is about as pop as you can get. But he, he admired that voice and they were friends. He didn't have a lot of friends in the entertainment business, but, but they were friends. He loved Brenda Lee. He liked that sassiness and brassiness in her voice and uh, the kind of chutzpah. He liked something like MacArthur's Park. He said he would have sung. He told Steve Bender famously he would have sung that if, if someone had brought that song to him. But uh, he just really uh, he couldn't have embraced the psychedelic era. And, you know, there's a lot of criticism of his manager, Colonel Tom Parker, for, for keeping him in those kind of dreadful films at a time when the world was really changing in the late 60s and psychedelic music was raging and all of these new artists were changing the the culture as well as the music scene up uh, and you know by mistake or by design it might have been a smart choice because elvis could not really adapt to that yeah there, i couldn't see elvis with a yeah. heavy metal scream and <laughs> right, <laughs> guitars right, right, right. and all that and long hair real long hair yeah and, and no he couldn't have pulled it off so you know in a way it was kind of like biding his time until he could uh present himself in a way that was palatable to his old fans, but also perhaps uh, win some new ones as well by, by doing stuff, like, you know, he, he covered James Taylor, for example. So um, he was still experimenting and uh, trying to find his place in the 70s, and he did very well with it. Yeah, I do remember that Hawaiian special that was on, and my mom watched it all the time, and it was really quite mesmerizing too. Even though it was uh, "quote unquote" fat Elvis, as they say, but... <laughs> not as fat as he would get. You know, he actually that was about his last hurrah as a kind of Adonis. But yeah. uh, you know, you look at him, and you see how his look broke very evenly in the three decades. The '50s Elvis looks very different from the '60s Elvis, who looks very different from the '70s Elvis. And I'm always uh, fascinated that this is uh, organic. You know, today's stars have these whole teams of people who choreograph this and that and advise them on costume and wardrobe. And and often they have very little say in, in how their image is presented and how they are made to look and sound. It was all him. He made all those decisions. The Colonel did not care about any of that. The hmm. only creative influence and input he had he wanted him to sing are you lonesome tonight uh allegedly because his wife liked it i think it was because it was 
public domain. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, the Colonel did not uh, interfere with any of those artistic or creative decisions. It was all Elvis. It, it all came from that deep, deep well of creativity. Right. Yeah, that is a good point you bring up because, you know, you think about Rihanna or people like that nowadays, they have I don't know, 20 producers on one song and, and they have songwriters and they have stylists and they have everyone putting uh, things together for them. Right. Now I want to get to a little bit of a darker subject. After all, this is the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you believe in that sort of thing, it kind of seems like Elvis was cursed. You think about his twin dying, his mom dying when he was young. Um, he died fairly young. His grandson committed suicide, and now his daughter has passed at a young age. I mean, what are your thoughts on this kind of tragic side of his legacy? Well, I was really struck by that when Lisa Marie died. I, I mean, I was sad when her son passed on, but uh, when she died... I was really affected by that. Part part of it was because I had met her and I, and I had interviewed her and, and really liked her. She was irreverent, and very down to earth. And when she spoke with you, she was really present with you. You didn't have a sense that she had a tip sheet that she was referring to. I mean, she, she really engaged in conversation and, and held nothing back. And so she was really delightful. But, you know, in some way, I think we all knew that this was going to end badly. I mean, the Presley's is a story that seems out of Shakespeare or out of ancient Greek texts or compares to that of the dynasty families of, of like the Kennedys with, with the world-changing fame and multi-generational trauma and tragedy. And uh, so much so as, as to seem like a curse. And, and, you know, someone with exceptional talent and beauty, wealth beyond measure, and then completing the Kennedy comparison, of course, is the fact that Caroline covered Elvis's funeral. While Lisa's uh, death was, I guess, an example of how the American dream turns into an American nightmare because she was rock and roll royalty, it does seem that some people live in an altered world where everything that could go wrong does. And, uh, you know, that brings to, to mind uh, the topic of epigenetics, for example, carrying trauma in the cells in a way that can actually be passed on. Hmm or inheritability of mental illness. I, I'm not saying that she was truly mentally ill, but she was unstable and she would be the first person to tell you that. And that goes back to a, a long line on Elvis's mother's side, the Smiths. You know, Gladys, I'm sure you read in Baby Let's Play House, had all the trees cut down around the home because she thought she saw shadows in them, for example. Um, Elvis's cousins, uh, several of those, fellows were, were were unstable. His cousin Bobby tried to kill himself a couple of times and uh, met an early death. Uh, they also had spectacular bad luck, like the cousin who fell in a vat of uh, liquid chrome. It, you know, it goes on and on. I, I, was, uh, I had a therapist one time who said that um, he had a client who was the daughter of a Holocaust survivor, a, a patient who had a cloud of doom that followed her. He said he could feel her depression, her energy had, uh, she had almost a mist around her, um, a kind of a kind of energy, dark, dark energy, almost a curse that you couldn't account for. And so this idea of bad luck or, or possession or energy along family lines is a fascinating thing. And uh, I think we do see this in the 
Presley line. But of course, you add spectacular fame and inability to deal with it and inability, no schooling whatsoever about handling money. Um, and with, in Lisa's case, such disparity of households of her mother's being very controlling and, and uh, very hands-on in Los Angeles. And then she goes to visit her father and he, he lets her stay up all night and race the golf cart all around and whatever she wants to do. And she's a She's a sullen kind of angry child. You know, she would go down to the gates and write to F you, Lisa Marie Presley, his autograph. Oh, really? So, <laughs> and, uh, you know, she, she was the first to say, you know, I was a hellion. I, I just could not be controlled. You know, it's also a testament to Elvis and to Lisa, how much they were able to shine through, through the veil of, of all that was in their past. Yeah, I mean, they definitely had a lot more obstacles. Some people may see them as opportunities, but they couldn't live a normal life or, you yeah. know, just kind of enjoy the the process, I guess, of just being. They had to be somebody, yeah. which is an immense pressure, I would imagine. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, well, you wrote another book, which you alluded to earlier about Dolly Parton, who's also incredibly famous, but I think she kind of has a more sunny, happy legacy. Um, so you wrote a book about her in 1978. So I'm kind of wondering yeah. how that came about and what it was like to get to interview her for the book and well, what you yeah. think about, you know, her now, because she's, you know, still going strong. Oh, I have so many thoughts about Dolly. Um, I did not interview her for the book. I interviewed oh, you didn't. her for, okay. no, no, she wouldn't uh, sit for an interview for that book. But I had, um, uh, because she always likes to control the narrative. She's very, very, very hands-on about her image. Uh, she doesn't like anybody coming to do any kind of biographical work on her. She thinks that she is the owner of her story. And, uh, you know, I could argue both ways about that. But yeah. I had done a cover story for her for a magazine called Country Music Magazine, which is now defunct, but it was a pretty serious and, and respected publication. And um, I spent several days with her in her home in Nashville, and uh, we got along famously. I mean, I really enjoyed her. She uh, cooked spaghetti for me. We played guitar together. It was very, very fun. And uh, But she was making her crossover bid to go beyond Nashville to go out into the world with a larger pop sounding um, uh, approach to all kinds of music. She didn't just want to sing country music. She wanted to sing My Girl, for example. She wanted to sing all kinds of things and write music in a different style. What, but she would say, I don't, I'm not leaving country. I want to take it with me. And that was tough for a lot of people in Nashville to accept or understand. So there was a, this big hoopla about this and a lot of people were up in arms about it. She was going to LA for management. Well, no country star did that except uh, somebody like Roy Clark who lived in Virginia, but you know, went to um, Jim Halsey out in Oklahoma, for example, but LA had a different sheen to it. A country star going out to Los Angeles for management and booking was, you know, people were offended in Nashville. So yeah, the devil's but, playground. The devil's <laughs> playground. So the cover story was about all of these changes and what she, how she saw her vision. And I had gone on the road. Uh, I was supposed to be traveling with her, but that got nixed. But but I went down to Waco again. Waco keeps coming up in this conversation. Um, yeah. uh, to see her uh, uh, open for Willie Nelson on a tour through Texas when Willie was, you know, not the megastar he is now, but had his very, very loyal following. And she came out and did songs from her album, uh, 
uh, oh, New Harvest First Gathering. And she sang Light of a Clear Blue Morning. And she sang My Girl and that kind of stuff. Well, she, she was kind of booed off the stage. Wow. Maybe off the stage is a little uh, too harsh. She was she did not get a warm reception for those songs. <laughs> and uh, of course, I had to write about that. And she was furious. She nailed me at a, um, at a <laughs> I went to a party for her at Windows on the World after she was at the bottom line and uh, I waved to her and she brought, you know, waved me over and uh, she nailed me about that. She was furious about it. Sounds like you were just stating facts. That's what I thought. She was mad about it, but you know, she does that. She's her mother was very forthright and she would nail you, but she didn't like something because she'd let you have it. My mother is from Sevierville and I am actually distantly related to Dolly. So I understand this kind of mountain mindset because I grew up with my mother, of course. <laughs> so, um, but they're not, the pardons are not shy about uh, letting you know if they don't like something. And I know she has called the national paper and complained about a photograph that, that, that uh, ran with a story about her, for example. So she was not happy about it. And I was kind of shocked because I, same thing, I thought it was just kind of saying, well, she's making this transition. She's going to have uh, some, you know, a little bit of opposition about it, but she will prevail. That was, of course, the way the story ended. But she was she was pissed. Country Music Magazine was approached uh, because of that story by a book publisher, a new uh, book publisher. Uh, the guy's wife loved Dolly and uh, they wanted a Dolly Parton biography. So I, I still thought she would cooperate with it, but she did not. So. I interviewed a lot of people around her and other stars and, you know, put together what I thought was a very fair minded book and uh, it got wonderful trade reviews and fan reviews. So I was happy with it, but she was not uh, pleased that I had done that. No. Hmm. Well, it's interesting too. when yeah, the, you know, when you were talking about her wanting to be so much in control of her image and what's written about her and how she looks of course everybody has that innate uh, wish but I wonder how some of these aging music stars or celebrities feel about the advent of social media cell phone cameras I mean they're really they've totally lost control I would think she really circles the way you know tightens the wagon I guess I should say tightens the circle of the wagons uh it's very tough for people to get to her unless she sanctions them so hmm. but you know look she's Dolly Parton I mean she has achieved astonishing things not only for herself and her legacy but but for uh, East Tennessee and for literacy for God's sake and, and, and you know and, and let's not forget she gave a million bucks for the Moderna vaccine yeah. So she has really uh, walked the talk. And, uh, you know, what it, What she told me in those early interviews, and I've done, I did several with her, was that she wanted to she wanted to do lots of good things for her people, meaning the people of um, East Tennessee. But but beyond that, and she didn't see why people were upset that she was making this branching out. She wasn't leaving anything behind again, as she said. And and she just she said, I just want to see what all I can do, what all I'm made of, how big I can get. And I think everybody kind of scoffed at it, but but no, I think no one would have guessed that she could be taken seriously seriously as a comedic uh, actress with Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda in Nine to Five. My God, she she completely held her own with those veterans. I mean, she whatever she puts her mind to doing, she can do. But there's something else about her that people don't talk about that I find really fascinating. She um, when we did our photo shoot for the um, magazine cover shoot. Um, afterwards, the 
photographer took some pictures of us together uh, outside and uh, she wanted to do a back-to-back chest comparison <laughs> and I was, I was embarrassed and in the photo you can see I'm kind of like oh well she thought that was hilarious but I, I came to realize that she she kind of, she kind of uh, she likes to get kind of the upper hand with you by being uh, particularly with men uh, kind of flirtatious or uh, uh, shocking in a sexual way but in a playful way like like um, I'm going to read you something. I wrote a book called Behind Closed Doors, Talking with the Legends of Country Music. And this is something that Chet uh, Atkins, who was, you know, head of RCA and National at the time, uh, told me about her. One time we were rehearsing a TV show out at Opryland, and I was sitting there waiting for something to happen. She came walking across the stage with a pair of real tight pants on. And she walked up to me and she said, I saw you looking at my crotch. And it embarrassed the hell out of me. And I said, well, it was only a glance. Damn, I'm sorry. And I really didn't realize I had done it. But she accused me. And I suppose I did. And I said, well, you do that too once in a while, don't you? And she said, oh, well, sometimes. And she went giggling off. She loves to tease, Dolly does. So I, that's pretty cute. I was kind of shocked that Chet told me that story because he wasn't the sort to say such things. But she also did this with uh, Chet Flippo in, in, I think, 1977 at Rolling Stone. He took her out for a picnic for the interview, which is pretty ingenious. Chet was such, such a good reporter and writer. And um, she wanted to do it in the cemetery. They were out looking for a place. And so she said, let's go to the cemetery. That's nice and quiet. <laughs> so they, he spread this blanket out and, and they had this picnic. And, and, and I'm quoting now from Rolling Stone. Ooh, you've got cherries for dessert. Dolly says, mm, good. I ain't had a cherry in a long time. She looks at me mischievously. I don't think I ever had a cherry. If I did, it got shoved so far back I was using it for a taillight. Chet writes, I must have looked shocked. I'm just kidding. She winks and throws a cherry seed at me. So this is her thing. And people, of course, just fall down when she does it. Uh, and it's very disarming. It works <laughs> very, very well for her. Yeah, she is one of a kind. Um, and I thought that it was interesting that Dolly at first turned down her nomination to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but then she changed her mind. Because um, a lot of rock songwriters and singers have been influenced by her, after all. Yeah. I mean, she's yeah. written so many incredible songs. Um, I have my favorites, but what are yours and why? Oh, I'm going to tell you the song I like the best, which is one that probably just the average person doesn't know it's a it's a 1983 song called Appalachian Memories which she later started singing uh, under the title of Smoky Mountain Memories and it's about the migration of southerners who went north to work in the factories and the emotional trauma of leaving their families and living up there to do so I think it's her very best writing and a remarkable performance uh, on, on an album. And when she does it live, I'll tell you, it's spine tingling. Um, she said that she related to it because her own dad had gone to work in Detroit uh, following his brothers up there, uh, but he didn't like it and he didn't fit in. And he came home shortly. He, he was homesick and just it didn't feel right to him. It's a, it's a better song, I believe, than, than one with a similar theme that everybody knows, I think, which is Detroit City, 
that Mel Tillis and Danny Dill wrote back in the 60s and Bobby Bear made it made a big hit. But it's it's really uh sort suss it out. It's it's a fantastic, fantastic song. Hmm, I'll have to give that one a listen. She can definitely her voice can bring you to tears. And of course, yeah. I will always love you or the code of many colors or yes. any of those are just very emotional songs that and she has that ability to really connect with people through her voice which you know not a lot of people have so right um yeah and you connect with people through your words um what is your process as a writer when it comes to books I mean do you have like really rigid outlines and stick to them are you more of like a pantser where you kind of let it flow as you start writing I'd love to know more about that well the creative process with a biography, and I, this must be true for people who write fiction, but I, I, I don't have that talent. I'm just a gatherer of facts and, and an interviewer and, and hope that the story bubbles up from the research. And I did tons of research, spend years on research. Uh, and then I spend more time doing the setup than I do the actual writing because the setup is... Uh, where I make all my guides of where all the information is in these hundreds of people that I interview for these books. So I can put my fingers on it, on it uh, quickly when I'm actually writing. So I'll, I'll cross-reference these guides of where all this information is by subject and who says it. And uh, it takes me months and months and months to, to do that. I haven't found a really quick way to do it. Yeah, there's no uh, shortcut for that kind there's of... There's no shortcut for that. No, no. I've looked into various programs and they don't really work for me. But then when you sit down to write it, you make your real outline of how this thing is going to go. And you start following that. And then at some point, this mysterious process happens where the book says, no, you're doing it wrong move over here's the other chair just slide right over here i'm <laughs> going to show you how it's done and how it should be done and it's like this other <laughs> you know donovan used to say that um in writing songs that he, he just put up an antenna and he would beam them in and uh, i do feel like when i'm researching it's the same thing like things just come to you i mean oh, like interviews fall in your lap or some such or or some kind of luck that it seems seems almost cosmic where you stumble across some piece of information or or something um with the actual writing process it is like the, the book has its own personality in mind and it's it knows more than you do and it's smarter than you are and it's going to show you uh where you're wrong and how it should be done and it's you just kind of hang on for the wild ride <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, I mean, your uh, Baby Let's Play House book is highly entertaining, but I don't feel like there's any embellishment, but it's it's fun to read. It's entertaining as well as educational. It's not just cut and dried. Good, good. Thank you. That's good um, to hear. So what is your favorite thing about being a journalist and an author? And for any aspiring biographers out there, do you have any pieces of sage advice well, I'm always amazed at how being a journalist gives you a license to knock on any door and to be admitted more times than you would ever think you would get. Uh, that it allows you to have these remarkable adventures with people you wouldn't think would give you the time of day and broadens your life experience in a way that I, I don't think I even have the words for and that words, words are what I use 
stock and trade. But as far as advice, I think you, for nonfiction, you just research and research and research and research and research and don't go in with a set idea of what the story is. Let the story emerge from the research because very often it will be different from what you think at the beginning. Yeah, that's great advice. And I feel like in some ways, I mean, definitely in a lot of ways, having so much access to research through the internet and being online and being able to connect with a lot more people than you ever would back in the day before that. But yeah. I, I did read that you actually traveled to Scandinavia or Den where, where was the colonel from? You went to Holland. His I went to Holland. Holland. Yeah. yeah. So that, I mean, that's really going the extra mile, but I, I imagine, you know, there's really no substitute for being there. Well, the colonel was an illegal alien language we don't use anymore, but, but he was here. Uh, he, he sneaked into the country. He tried a couple of times. He was deported. There's a new uh, edition of my biography of Colonel Parker, which is called The Extraordinary Story of Colonel Tom Parker. Oh, it's called The, the Colonel, The Extraordinary Story of Elvis Presley and Colonel Tom Parker. That is it's, my next read. Yeah, I can't wait to oh, read Oh, thank you. Um, so my friend and brother, I call him, uh, Tony Stutchberry, who's an Englishman, found a document that, uh, you know, when I was doing the, the, the book in the late 90s, um, it... There, there just wasn't that much online. So now Tony has found this document where he was actually deported on one of his early trips. Um, I went to Holland to interview his family, particularly, and people who knew him when he was growing up there. And uh, I was kind enough to be embraced by his niece, who uh, was the daughter of the sister, Parker's sister, who was next in line with him, and he was pretty close. So... I also was able to make uh, a friendship with, with his nephew who had uh, received a remarkable letter that the colonel had written to him uh, after the family discovered him. I mean, he, he, he left in 1929 um, for good. He had come over first as a 17-year-old as and the family had a big going away party for him and uh, was thrilled that he could come over and have this adventure. But when he left the second time, he left very abruptly not telling anybody he was leaving. He took no identifying papers or his famous clothes. I mean, he was very fastidious about his clothing and spent a lot of money on his clothes. He left everything behind. He took no money and he just vanished. And then after a while, they began getting uh, letters and he had joined the American army, which we would take foreign nationals if they pledged to become U.S. citizens. Hmm. But before he became a citizen, he deserted. He went AWOL. And uh, I was able to ha have find a, an army records researcher who sussed all this out for me. He was kind of secretive about all of this. And uh, he, he was absent without leave. And um, his discharge paper, which my researcher found, is just amazing. It's, uh, they gave him an honorable discharge, even though he deserted uh, on basis of uh, emotional instability and, and the language they used is constitutional psychopathic state. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. That. Yeah. It is. It is. There's a lot of things that you may not have been able to discover had you not met with his family in Holland. Correct. Yeah. And I think it was, and to see where he grew up, um, I understood from that trip why money was so important to him. They were so poor. 
and they lived above the stables. His father was a drove a, a horse and wagon delivering packages, kind of you know an early UPS kind of thing. And uh, Van Ginden was was the uh, company, and they lived above the stables and, and had to take care of the horses. And his mother liked nice things, but they were there were too many children, and the father didn't make enough money, and he was ill to boot. Um, so, and you know, in Holland, you know, people there were a lot of people that lived together, very closely packed in together. So there wasn't ever anything left over for the average Dutch family. And um, I, I knew the Colonel, I had three meetings with him and he really wouldn't allow you to ask any questions about Elvis. He, he, he wouldn't allow you to ask questions about much of anything. You could, he would hold court and you could sit there and bask in that. And you felt very, very fortunate to be able to do that, but you knew that he was not going to answer any questions. Huh. And uh, finally, I did try to ask some questions. He got very angry at me. Uh, but I asked him, you know, why he insisted on those terrible movies and uh, terrible songs from the terrible movies that he would then pull the singles from uh, in the 60s, when, of course, he was up against the Beatles and the Beach Boys and whatever, and wasn't charting very well in the 60s. And uh, the colonel got furious with me. We were in a car, and he was... He was in the passenger seat. He was stamping his cane on the floorboard when he was answering me. And he was insisting that Elvis could have vetoed any of those film scripts, that the scripts were sent to his home. And he could have said no, but he didn't. Um, he said he could re record any music he wanted. And, and those restrictions were relaxed as time went on. And Elvis finally insisted. But he, what the colonel kept saying to me over and over was, I got him the most money ever particularly in Vegas, I got him the most money ever. And it was always about the money. And then I realized having been to Holland, after I went to Holland, he died and I began this book. He went to Holland and I, and I saw how money would have meant so much to that family, particularly to his mother, to whom he was very close. Uh, and Just like uh, Elvis being close. Just to like him. Elvis was. Yeah. yeah it's so interesting. They're both very close to their mothers, both brought down by addictions. And in, in uh, the Colonel's case, it was gambling. Wow. Um, well, you've written so many great books, and I, you've really delved into Elvis in particular, but I'm wondering if there's a book that you haven't written yet, but you would like to? Well, I was, I talked to Leon Russell about helping him with an autobiography, and Leon was somebody I just adored as a fan, and the first time I interviewed him, he was pretty gruff, and I heard, heard that he could be exceedingly gruff. <laughs> but, you know, I went back and tried again some years later. I actually talked to him for the Colonel Parker book. He was fascinated by Colonel. Um, but I interviewed him for, for Penthouse and AARP, what an extreme, huh? When his last album came out. And I found him very different that time and uh, very willing to sit for a long interview and answer any questions. And uh, as we were signing off, I said, you know, you should you should write a book. And uh, I said, if you decide to do that, I would really like to work on that with you. And a couple of days later, uh, the publicist called me and said, uh, Leon wants you to call him. Hmm. So I did. And he said, you know, I was thinking about what you said. Uh, but he wanted something to come out very, very quickly uh, to help promote what turned out to be this last album. And I said, no, you can't. You can't do that. Nothing of quality could be done that soon. But then we started talking about, you know, a real book, a real autobiography. And I went down to Nashville, to Nashville and met with him. He lives in Mount Juliet. 
And he took me out to lunch at Red Lobster and he had on one of his African hats. And I thought, oh my God, if I ever write an autobiography, I'm going to have to open. I'm sitting in a Red Lobster in Mount Juliet, Tennessee with Leon Russell and his African hat. <laughs> it just seemed so incongruous. And I got to know him quite well and uh, loved him. He told me that if he had a little sister, he, he wanted to be like me. And we just had a, a beautiful friendship. But he said the problem with doing his book is that he really couldn't remember his life. Oh, wow. Hmm. Yeah. 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 And uh, he had taken a stab at it some years before, quite a few years before. And he, he handed me a manuscript that he had written. And uh, it was just very hit and miss. I mean, some stories that needed hugely fleshing out, for example. And just like somebody had just sat down and, and tapped out whatever story came to them, but, but nothing with any real bones on it. So I said, well, you know, obviously this is a great place to start, but I need to interview you over and over and over and over and over again. And he said, well, I just, I, I can't remember. And I said, well, then I would go interview everybody else who was, you know, on the Bad Dogs and Englishman tour, for example, or, or in your bands through the years or Rita Coolidge or, you know, whoever. Right. And he said, um, well, Okay, but I want you to come live at the house while you do that. We'll talk a little bit, and then you go off in the next room and write. And I said, well, it doesn't work like that. You have to do all the research and then all the writing. You can fill in some holes later, but you can't, I can't, I can't do that. And he didn't understand why. And it, you know, it, later it struck me that that's the way he would have done an album with his, you know, so-called family. Right. All live together and then go play music and then go eat and whatever else they were going to do and then go back and do the same thing again. But it didn't, it wouldn't work that way for a biographer. But, and so he was kind of, you know, on the fence about uh, then going forward. And he also said he wanted the same kind of money from a publisher that Willie Nelson was getting. And I said, I just don't see that happening because Willie has done a number of books and is really in the spotlight. So he was very disappointed about that. And so we were still kind of just hemming and hawing about it. And then he had to go have heart surgery. And he never recovered from it. And oh, yeah. It, so it didn't happen. But but there is a new book out about him. And uh, it entered the New York Times bestseller list at number 14. And I was astonished because, you know, Leon was never a massive star. But I'm so glad that he's having all of this attention now. Well, you know, he died in 2016. I think of him every day. And I'm thrilled that this, this book is doing well. Yeah, before he uh, became sort of a solo artist, he did a lot of sessions with my dad's band, The Ventures, yes. and played keyboards on them. So yes. yeah, and, and my dad just was in awe of his talent and his um, just, I don't know, it's kind of a magical talent that it seemed like, you know, he didn't really even have to, to work for. It was just kind of like, there it was, the magic. So yeah. What a yeah. great person he was and um, beautiful songwriter, great voice. Oh, yeah. Yes. yeah, it's a shame that we're starting to lose our our rock stars. You know, yeah. they're all starting to leave us, but they do leave us with music and the gift of music that is, you know, it's incomparable and it will last forever. Just like Elvis, who's been gone yes. longer than he was alive now and right. still, you know, people are moved by his music and his creativity absolutely and yes. you know as long as as long as the uh estate is in good hands uh maybe not too many more things like agent elvis and uh 
concentrates more on the music and the artistry instead of him as, as an icon. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Well, Alana, these. I want to thank you for being on the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. And I'd like to, uh, you know, have you tell people where they can find your books or where they can follow you online. If you're into social media, let's uh, give your, your uh, book a so shout nice. out here. Uh, that's so nice. Uh, and thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really honored to be with you. Thank it's you. great to chat with you. Thank you. Amazon is the best place. Um, uh, I do have a little website about Colonel Parker. Uh, you can find that at Google. And uh, I'm on Facebook. Okay. So we look for Alana Nash, uh, Colonel Parker, and Amazon. We can do right. that. Thank you so <laughs> much. Right. Yeah, we can manage that much research. <laughs> Thank you. So Thank you. All right. Take care. I'm taking a little break from nonfiction this week and sharing a short excerpt from one of the Rock and Roll Nightmares fiction editions. This is from the audiobook, Along Comes Scary, read by Jennifer Knighton. California Screamin' by Renee Mallette. The curtains, such a bright red they were nearly lurid to begin with, were running slowly down the walls, melting. Winston eyed them with a vague disinterest. He thought he felt the bed beneath him start to move, and then realized that the entire room was spinning like a record. This is a really bad trip, Winston thought, with something almost like wonder. The bed, rock hard, and encased in a coverlet nearly as red as the curtains, began to buck. So, it was the bed and the room, and they were both spinning in opposite directions— a frantic knocking sound began, increasing in volume until the hot, stale air of the hotel room seemed to reverberate with the noise. I don't know what I'm doing in Kansas, Winston thought, not for the first time that night. Suddenly, the aging musician realized the room was filled with a sharp metallic odor, one that transported him to his youth, the years spent helping his dad in the family butcher shop. The curtains weren't melting, the walls were bleeding. Thick, viscous liquid pooled in the bright spring-green carpet, looking surprisingly festive, like Christmas decorations at a fancy department store. Winston had one last thought before he blacked out, one of the most lucid and definitive moments of the entire three hours he had spent in room 2006 of the Hotel California. This is all his fault. Includes another episode of Rock and Roll Nightmares. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson. The theme song, Out for Blood, is composed and sung by Lars with a Z, Cabot, and the band is Fuzzbuster. This is an indie podcast, so your subscriptions and ratings are really important. Thank you for joining me, and until next time... <laughs>